Welcome to the Foundation Podcast. My name is Simone Scott and I'm going to be sharing some South African stories of hope with you. My goal is to give you more information about the great things that people out there are doing to improve our country. Today I want to shine the light on someone who is advocating for an issue that moved a lot of people to action in the last few years, especially in 2019. Cookie Edwards, the director of the KZN Network on Violence Against Women, has been working to help victims of gender-based violence for many years. But first things first, I just want to give you a bit of a warning that this episode is going to be slightly different to the others, mainly because I honestly don't really need to say too much about this woman. She tells her story in a very compelling way all on her own, so you, you hopefully won't be hearing as much of my voice this time. Also, Cookie was kind enough to grant me some time on the night before her 60th birthday and came for dinner on my balcony. So if you hear the occasional hadida, frog or the sound of our cat's bell in the background, don't be surprised. I realize that I live in a pretty noisy environment after doing this episode. And surprisingly, my little mic is really good at picking up peripheral sounds. While we spent some time together, it became clear to me that Cookie is one very busy woman and also that she's very sought after. I was incredibly grateful that she was willing to give me some time in this special week. Not only was it the eve of her birthday, but it was also the first day of the annual 16 Days of Activism movement. It was truly an honor to spend an evening listening to her share her story and hearing more about what is being done to combat violence against women and children. I'm the director of the KZN Network on Violence Against Women, a work that I've been doing now for the last 30 years on gender-based violence, well, sexual and gender-based violence. Um, the reason I do this work was because I was also a survivor of domestic violence in my first marriage. This multifaceted woman believes in empowering others, so she performs two different roles at the moment. So basically, Cookie is busy doing good in two spheres. First, she tells me about her work with DramAid, an organization that visits communities to educate them on HIV and AIDS by performing plays, hence the name DramAid before going on to tell me more about her work um, in the gender-based violence sphere. Well, I'm working with Dram Aid at the moment. It's uh, Drama and AIDS Education. Um, we link, we're working in informal settlements and I work in Ward 101, that's Cato Crest, your Cato Manor area, and uh, Ward 25, that's your Clear Estate area. The two informal settlements, they're huge. So, um, we have staff who are facilitators, who facilitate educational structured sessions in the communities. And then they discuss, uh, it's a module that, uh, a manual that they use that's called Stepping Stones. And it's got 10 modules in it. So they start from the first discussion and you have to attend the whole 10. So each module has different topics. So through the discussions, people will realize why it's important to be tested for HIV, or if you've been uh, a survivor of gender-based violence, uh, voluntary medical male circumcision, because we target men, women, young girls and boys. And um, from 15 to 25 plus, if I could put it that way. Um, we also, for drug and alcohol rehab, TB testing, STI screening, pap smears. So when all these things are being discussed in the sessions and your participants will say, oh, I need to get tested for HIV, but I'm scared, you know, that kind of thing. I don't, I'm frightened, what if I'm positive or whatever it is. Then uh, the facilitator will contact me and say that um, 
there's someone that needs to be linked to the clinic. So I work with the clinics and uh, the participants, linking them to the clinics. So when I take them, then they don't have to sit in these long queues because uh, we have an agreement. Well, DRAM Aid has an agreement with Department of Health that when we bring people in, they must be fast-tracked through. Because that's also a reason why people won't go, because they don't want to sit in the queues just to be tested, you know. And then, yeah, it gets also very emotional when you take in people, especially the youth. And so uh, I normally take the company's Avanza, which we could take about eight people in there, you know. So you've got eight youth in the Avanza that you're taking for testing. And uh, maybe six are negative and two are positive, or seven are negative and one is positive. And then you don't know how to comfort that person because you don't want to expose that young girl or young boy in front of the friends, you know. Last week, I just had a young girl of 15 who was taken for her HIV test because she needed to go on PrEP. PrEP is your pre-exposure prophylaxis, you know, to, it helps also to uh, protect your, immune, your system, immune, your immune system against contacting HIV. I mean, you can read up about the PrEP. So we try to encourage people who are negative to go on that. It's like an ARV, but uh, then you get the PEP that's after um, PrEP is pre and then uh, PEP is post. If you're sexually assaulted or raped or something, then you go on the PEP, you know, the ARV thing. So uh, we encourage a lot of the people, like especially the youth, especially the young girls, that if they're negative, to go onto the ARV treatment of PrEP. So this young girl of 15, I transported her to the clinic and when we got there, they have to go through the test first. And she was positive. That evening, no, then uh, straight away we have to, uh, with the service provider, initiate them onto art, you know, the ARVs and things, uh, onto treatment. And she refused to take the treatment because she said she wanted to go home and uh, tell her mum. But that night, the facilitator sent a message and said that this young girl said she can't live with this thing and she wants to commit suicide and, you know. So you're also dealing with the emotional side of things, you know, it's not just about taking people, you know. And then also you have um, women who will say um, they need to go for pap smears or STI screening or TB or HIV testing or whatever it is. And then when you sit in with them in the clinic, then you'll find that, and you're talking to them, because you have to, I mean, you're building a relationship with them. And then you'll find that the one will say, oh, I'm being abused by my husband, and I don't want him to know that I'm going to be tested, but I need to find out my status. Then you also got a counsel on the, the gender-based violence, you know, GBV, and uh, refer her to a service provider where she will continue with her counseling and things. So those, those are the kind of things that we deal with, you know. So that's actually DRAM aid. Cookie isn't afraid to get personal. And as we sit together on the balcony, she tells me more about her own history. And it quickly becomes clear why she's so passionate about this particular issue. Cookie's overcome so much in her life. Her story had me completely captivated. I honestly don't think you can listen to what she went through without feeling a mixture of emotions. But enough from me for now. I'm going to let Cookie tell her own story in her own words. We grew up in a home 
So I'm going to go like right back. We grew up in a home. I'm the eldest, and um, my father used to drink a lot. And he used to abuse my mother. So there's seven of us. And uh, when he used to abuse my mother, my mother used to run away. You know, you couldn't understand it at that time. Why would your mom leave you with all these children to look after and that kind of thing? So um, I had to look after the siblings. But as I said, years later, you understand why she was running away. She was running away because she wanted to be safe, you know, because of the, the, the horrific abuse that she went, suffered at the hands of my father. And he only used to do that when he used to have alcohol in him. He was a very aggressive man. Anyway, um, as we were growing up and this continued and my mom used to run away, then he turned the physical abuse to me, you know, and I became a victim of child abuse. And I'm not talking just a clap here or a slap there or a whatever. I'm talking about the most horrific child abuse you could think of. That in this day and age, if it happened, he would probably have been charged, you know. Um, I got hit with anything and everything, you know. It was, it, it was terrible abuse. And um, I was, as I said, I was still very young and I took after my siblings. So when he used to hit my mum and my mum used to run away, then I have to look after them. So which means that I couldn't go to school because there's no mother in the house. Excuse me, the siblings are small, right up to babies. And then my, but the one thing in all that, my father still went to work. He still provided for his family, you know. So um, I had to stay at home and look after my siblings and try and cook for them. And I was so young and I could just about see into the pot. Um, so I practically looked after them every time mum went. But also, when he was frustrated and mum wasn't around, then he would turn that abuse to me. But in that time, um, when all this was going on, he, he opened a tavern in our house, like a shabin. They call it a shabin or a tavern or whatever you want to call it. And uh, people used to come and buy alcohol. Then they saw his friends used to come on the weekend. They used to sit together and drink, whatever it was. But his friends saw, because they in the house all the time, so they would see what was going on. And they started sexually abusing me. But it was like, you know, if you tell your father what your father's going to do, you know, he'll hit you and all that. So that was an advantage kind of a thing. And um, through all that that went on, then I, saw, then I started running away from home. I was also running away from home running away from the physical abuse, the sexual abuse by the friends. When my father never went, he never sexually abused, he physically abused us. But I mean the people around there, the guys. So um, I started running away. But then you're running away for your safety because you can't live in this environment anymore. But as I said, you know, as you grow older and you look back and all that, then it was, I was, because we, ne we grew up in a home where there was no affection, shown, let me put it that way. We never got hugs and well done or whatever it was, no matter what it was. Oh, I'm pretty hot with this thing on. And uh, it doesn't matter what it was, what we did. We never got those kind of words. So I used to run away and, because I used to see my friends and their families and how they used to treat their children, talk to them nicely and... I love you and hug their children. So I used to run to these homes 
because I used to see it there, and I used to have that little envy in me, you know, and uh, wish that it was also me that was also getting that. So I used to run away and tell lies and say, oh, whatever, just so that I could sleep in this person's house or whatever it is. And then, yeah, so I started running away. I hitchhiked around South Africa. And also when you look back, you also say to yourself, thank God I never got raped or murdered anywhere, like today, you know. And we used to hitchhike and we saw the line and we say, oh, we're going to look for my mother. But I always took somebody with me. I used to make my friends run away with me, you know, kind of. So anyway, we were a little bit naughty also. And um, yeah, so I ended up uh, in, in PE where we got arrested for hitchhiking on the freeway. And then uh, they kept us in a cell. There were three of us two other girls that I took with me, that the three of us went. We went like 11 and 12 years old kind of a thing. 10, 11, not even 12. And um, they transported us back to Durban on the train with social workers. Because um, they managed to track our families and things. But when we landed here in Durban at Durban Station, not this new Durban, the old Durban Station where the workshop is, that was like Durban Station that time. Uh, see this man standing there, some people, my two friends, families, no one for me. No mum, no dad. But um, the social worker that, trans that accompanied us from PE was talking to this guy and there were some young boys with him. So um, she says to me, oh, um, Cookie, you're going, you know, they're taking you home. Only to find myself in a place of safety. That was actually the principle. And these boys that he was with was um, to guard me. Because they used to call me a springbuck because of the way I used to run. You know, if you tried to catch me, you wouldn't catch me. So he brought this group of guys. Uh, to guard me. So anyway, they got me in the kumi, and in the kumi, I'm still saying to them, as, as stupid as ever, I'm still saying to them, you'll say, uh, where's my father? You know, you're taking me to my father because I saw us going in like another road and I thought they'd take me to my father's work or something and I found myself. Anyway, I ended up in a place of safety for two years. And um, in, the, in, in, in fact, I was so happy there because there were other girls just like me our age, who also came from dysfunctional families and broken homes and things. So we were a support to each other, you know. And we used to look after the younger children and, and we had duties and chores and things. But the thing is, there was a system. And somehow the other, even though you hated the system, but it made you feel like you were part of something, you know. Anyway, one day my father rocks up. Well, they used to come and visit me and he used to scream at me in front of everybody or whatever. But anyway, one day he rocks up. He had a little bit of alcohol in it and I could hear from the gate and I started shivering because if my father was coming from the bottom of the road, you would shiver because just by his voice, because you knew, you know. But as I said, it was only when he had something to drink. And that day when he was sober, he was a very mellow person. And um, he came in there and I just, Everyone's running to me and saying, Cookie, your father's here, your father's here. 
And I was shivering because I could hear, but I, uh, you know, his voice, but I couldn't hear what he was saying. And the next thing, the matron and the principal come to me and they say to me, Cookie, you have to pack up and go home now. And I don't want to, I don't want to go home. And I said, no, you have to. Your mom's not there. Your father's working. There's someone to look after the children. All that back again into the same cycle. Anyway, then I ran away again, came back and I done whatever, a couple of months, whatever, then I ran away again, because you're coming back to the same thing again. And um, I don't know where I was that time, whether I was in East London or Joburg, I can't even remember. But anyway, I came home, and when I got home, where we were staying in Overport, I stood there in shock because there was no house in front of me. It was flat. Flat. And when I looked for the neighbors and all that there, nobody, everything was just like demolished. And then um, further down the road, there were some people that were moving their furniture into a truck and I'm like, and then they knew me and I said, uh, this lady's name was Maureen. And I said, Maureen, where's my mummy and them? She said, no, they're gone to Wentworth. The group areas act has moved everybody out. And uh, they, they, they put us all in Wentworth. And she said, come, come in the truck, come, come, we're going because I'm, go, I'm there. You know, I, your mum and them are like in the next flat next to me. So I get into the truck now, I don't know where I'm going. Anyway, we go to Wentworth. So she said to me, you see that flat there, upstairs there, on the third floor, that's where your father and your mother are. So I go there, and I don't know where am I going, but anyway, I get to the door there and I knock, and my mother opens the door. And my, all my mother said is, where do you come from? And I don't know if my father heard, because he was in the room. And uh, they used to talk Afrikaans in our house. And he says, uh, in Afrikaans, like, who's that there? Like, So she said, no, it's Cookie. So he said, Kobe saw, like, you know, in, like, come here now. And she where you come from? I just kept quiet, put my head down. And then uh, you see my knuckles, like, they're quite big because we used to do this here because of the nerves. You know, you're cracking your knuckles and that kind of thing. Anyway, he says to me, go, help my mother in the kitchen. So then now I found myself in another area. And uh, we came from an area where... There was a lot of dysfunctional families, but we were children. We used to play, climb trees, play dollyhouse, you know, camping, bush camps, whatever. And we came into an environment where, oh, God, Jesus. We came into an environment where we saw people drinking, swearing the most foul language, fighting, and we came into this. And then we didn't even know how to survive in there. And then we got bullied, yes. Um, we got teased, we got bullied, we all had, uh, almost, uh, we four sisters and three brothers and the four of us all had very long hair because my, right up to our bums, because my father never used to allow us to cut our hair. And uh, they used to pull our hair, and, but in the end you learn how to survive and you start learning how to fight back and you become raw like them and that kind of thing, you know, just the environment. So I was 14 and then I met this guy, because it's flat, so when you're coming down, everybody's downstairs, all the, the youngsters are downstairs and that kind of thing. So this guy used to look at me and say, oh, I like you, I like you. And anyway, you know, when you look back now, you just think, gosh. Um, anyway, that was the first person that 
spoke so nicely to me and told me how he admires me and he's falling in love with me and I just fell for it and 15 I fell pregnant, 16 I had my first child. Yep. My father threw me out while I was pregnant. Anyway, um, I ended up going to live by his house and his mother used to swear me non-stop. So, um, he had just started working also for a, the frame group in Jacobs. And um, anyway, I used to go to my mother in the day when my father's gone to work with the baby and uh, make sure that I'm gone by the time he gets back from work. So, um, in the end, they took my eldest son. Because now it was going from the frying pan to the fire with the abuse now. And, um, yeah, the abuse started, first it was like the verbal, you know, and then it became physical. Then 18, I got another baby, 21, I had another child. But anyway, there was no one to guide me to say, Cookie, go into a contraceptive, this is what it's all about, or whatever. So, but, after I had the last baby, um, by that time everybody gave birth at Eddington that lived in Durban. So when I had the, my last son, the same one that's in Australia now, there was a doctor there called Dr. Good. And that was actually her, her name. And uh, she counseled me, and I'm talking like 30 something years ago. And uh, she counseled me and she says to me, Do, don't you think it would be better because of all of what you are going through to rather have your tubes tied maybe later on? You can untie them. I think she was the first person that really gave me practical advice. So I had my tubes tied and thank God for that. Really thank God for that. Imagine if I had more. But as I said, there was no one to guide me, to tell me what's right, what's wrong, or any advice, you know. What really stood out to me as we spoke is just how long violence had been part of Cookie's life. It seemed that it had almost become the norm for her. She knew there were families out there that weren't like that, but it also seemed like she'd accepted that there's no way out for her. Another thing that really struck me was her love for her son and how bad things must have been with her husband if she felt that it was better for him to be with her parents than with herself. Yeah, I ended up with the three children, but anyway, in those years, I was married for 14 years to my first husband. But in that 14 years, as I said, I was going from the frying pan to the fire. So the abuse the broken, I wear dentures, that's why you saw I was like with my tissues here, I think, because I wear dentures, because I had the broken jaw, and then he refused me to go for medical treatment, so for three months he locked me up in the house, I had to heal my jaw on its own. So for three months I went down to a size 26, 28, because I couldn't eat, because of the jaw being broken. I was just drinking liquids through a straw, but like it's like I couldn't even close my mouth over the, the, the straw. When he finally, because the reason why was also because my face was double its size. Because when you have a broken jaw, it swells up terrible. It's like you can see your face from this side, kind of a thing. So when the swelling and all went down, I lost my speech also. And um, I used to talk with a slur like I'm drunk. You know, like when you're really, like, really under the weather. And... Um, when I did go to hospital to go and have it seen to, um, they said to me they'll have to break the jaw again to have it reset. 
And I said, no, I cannot go through that pain again. Because, you know, that time they used to put the wires. I don't know if they still do it. But they wire your jaws. And, but uh, that wasn't even the issue for me. It was the pain of that broken jaw. And I felt like I could not go through that. It, 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 like you can't even explain that, that kind of pain. Anyway, I started, uh, I was not one that spoke to people because I couldn't pronounce my words properly. I couldn't speak properly. And then um, I relied on him financially because now I'm going to take you back. Uneducated, never finished school. Unskilled, no support, whatever. So um, where do you, even if you want to work, <laughs> you can't even speak properly. You didn't even finish your, prior, your high school. You didn't even go into high school. At the primary school only. But it was so broken because most of us more out than in. And uh, so where do you go? Essentially, Cookie felt trapped. Trapped by her lack of education. Trapped by the fact that she was financially completely dependent on this husband who abused her. It also becomes clear that she felt pretty much completely alone, having no real support to speak of. So she was left to try and protect her family all on her own. Things do eventually change for her, of course. That's why she was sitting with, here with me that night. But I must say that I was quite surprised by the way she actually got out of this, of this bad situation. When he, we moved from Wentworth, oh, we were staying with his parents, with his mother, not his parents, his mother, because his mother was a widow, and his siblings. And she used to swear me and throw me out and tell me she doesn't want me in the house and what have you. And then, so even when he was abusing me, I, she could not protect me because she should just be glad that these things were happening, you know. Excuse me. And then um, I used to, she used to abuse me until when he's sleeping, I used to, or when the abuse stopped or if I managed to get away or whatever, I used to grab my children and I used to run out at night. So when you're running out at night, you, um, you're not packing anything. You just going as you are, whether you got shoes on or no shoes on, excuse me, whether you got a, the, a, a nappy bag or change of clothing or, you're just going as you are because you are in fear and you, you just, you feel alone in this whole world. And I used to walk with my children in the night like this here now looking for a place to sleep and nobody, nobody would allow you to sleep at it. Nobody would open their door. So I used to sleep in the bush with my children till the morning. Then I know when he's gone to work, you know, I can go into the house. Then in the flats, it's all these council flats. So I used to or sleep on the stairs or in abandoned cars or in the park or whatever it was. And um, my children used to cry because they're cold, they're shivering, whatever it is. Anyway, that was 14 long years. And also, like, he'll give you a hundred rand, which you must stretch into maybe 500 rand, because 500 rand was a lot of money that time. Don't even talk about a thousand rand. 500 rand for the month. So you got to buy, and he still wants a meal when he comes home. Then he used to also do this to us. He used to go to work on a Friday morning, and we'll only see him Monday evening. So we're starving all that time. And... Uh, in that time, um, 
I don't know if you know Martin West, where, they, where the electricity, where people go and play next to the playhouse. There's a big brown building there, they call it Martin West. People used to go there and apply for housing. We used to actually get housing, uh, like you put your number down and your details and what, and they will allocate you a house or whatever. I used to go there every week with my blue eyes and whatever and uh, ask, for, ask them, please can I, how far I am on the list for a, for a flat, for a home? And they just say to me, because that time I was a Bloy, not Edwards. And they say, Mrs. Bloy, every week you're here and we keep on telling you we've got other families that are in more dire straits than you and uh, you just have to be patient and blah, 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 and what have you. And then they came a silly day. That's after a weekend of abuse. Because he was also a womanizer too. He was, you know, like other women. And then he used to come home and want to be uh, intimate with me and you could smell that he comes from sex and does all those kind of things. So anyway, that weekend, went the Monday I was back at Martin West again, borrowing bus fare. I never had clothes. I saw my panties. I used to hold them up with a safety pin because there wasn't even elastic to hold the panties up around my body. And then I used to borrow a dress or something from a neighbor, friend, put the dress on so I could at least look decent when I'm going to town. My one friend, I take a size seven, she takes a size eight. We always laugh about it. And I borrowed shoes from her because I didn't have shoes. And there's my foot here and the shoes there, you know, like a whole size flopping here at the back. And uh, anyway, I go to Martin West and I said to him, anyway, we sit on these benches, you take a number. So when you get to the counter, you ask him like anything. And they say, but you were just here last week. And we told you there's nothing we can do. And it was packed because people were actually getting their keys for some of the council flats in Newlands East. Okay. And... Um, because I think that is what made me go, because I heard that people were getting keys for their flats in Newlands East. It was like, like a new colour township coming up now. Hmm? So they said, oh, sorry, we can't do it, whatever. There's other families over here that are, yeah, and they come from worse. I looked at the lady, I said to her, i got no place to sleep tonight with my children. Oh, well, I'm so sorry. And like, you know, she was very harsh. I only had the two children at that time. My eldest son and my daughter. I went back to the chairs where we were. I said to them, sit here, mommy's coming now. Let me just go and sort something out. So they sat. I got in the lift and I left them. I left them there. And they were screaming. They were screaming because they saw I wasn't coming back now. And I had, the whole building came to a standstill. But I didn't leave them, I was standing downstairs and I was bawling on West Street. Well, not, it's not West, it's uh, Smith Street. You know, the playhouse and it's busy there. I was bawling and everyone's walking past and looking at me. Anyway, one of the ladies that were upstairs, because uh, there's quite a few colored people over there and that came for their keys, so one or two of the ladies came down to me and said, come up, your children are crying, they, they are screaming. I said, no. Then the lady, one of the staff, a white lady came, same white lady that was there with the 
counter and it was so harsh to me. She came down, she said, you better come and fix your children. They are screaming upstairs, we're going to phone the social worker. And if we do that, you're going to lose your children. I, and I ended up screaming back and then I said, you'd rather do that because I'm an unfit mother. I can't uh, uh, give my children even a proper roof or whatever it is, you know. Because when we were staying by his mother, we only had the one room. And in that one room, I used to sleep, cook, bath, do everything in that one room. And my children weren't allowed to go in the lounge and things. So I think all that, you know, came out. And I said, I'm not coming for them. You can do what you feel like. She said, well, I'm going to have to find the social. I said, do it. I was screaming there. It was like that day I was just ready to die. It was like, this is it. You know, this is the end. Anyway, another lady, another white lady comes down after a while and very soft-spoken and all. She says, my dear, I'm so sorry. I can see you're very upset. Come upstairs with me. You know, your children are very upset and they're crying and all that there. And um, we don't want to phone the social workers and all that there. But it, I think it was just her approach. And I went back up with her. Anyway, my children saw me and I was screaming and I was calming them down. Then she said to me, come up with me. No, then she said to me, come with me. I don't know where was I going. And um, she took me up to the seventh floor. I remember it was, no, 12th floor or whatever it was. Go up. And um, she said to me, I'm sitting in a waiting room. There were officers upstairs. I'm sitting over there with the children. And now, because I left them the first time, they were clinging to me now, you know. And um, so, <clears throat> I'm in fear in the pit of my stomach because I'm thinking, oh my God, they were... They're leaving me here because they must have called the social workers or whatever. The braveness I felt at that moment now was gone. Anyway, she comes into the waiting room and she says, come with me. I don't know where she was taking me. But anyway, we go into this office. God, this office was so huge. It was like I could make a room, a kitchen and a lounge in that office. If I had, if I could get a place. Huge office. And there's this white man sitting behind the desk. Massive desk. And he says to me, come in, come in. And the children are clinging to me and he's saying to me, don't. And, saying, and he's talking to the children, like calming them down, like, you know, in a nice way. And he says, sit down. And then he tells the lady, um, see what's there to get the children. You know, then he says to me, would you like some, a cup of tea or something? I said, no, because I don't know what I'm here for. And then he says to me, um, oh, then he was talking to children, calming them down. Then the lady came with some biscuits and she gave the children. And then he's, then she walked out the office and then he said to me, what? Tell me. He said, talk to me. Tell me what's going on. That was all I needed. That was all I needed. I, I, maybe that's not even the right words, but it's just whatever he said. That was all I needed and it came out and it came out in tears and everything, but it came out and it came out and it came out and it came out. My life, to where I'm sitting right now, you know, in his office. And I'm, I'm like this over here, uh, tell me something. I, I don't know where it came from, but I said to him, tell me something. You have a family. Would you allow 
your family to live in one room, bath, eat, sleep, cook, everything in one room, and your children must stay in that one room, and you're still being, uh, my husband's still abusive towards me and his family, and I've got nowhere to go, and my family won't give me the support. I don't know where to do. And then I looked behind him, and I saw the harbor. And uh, I said to him, if I don't get a place I'm, today, I'm going to kill myself and my children. I'm going to throw myself off the, 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 the pier there. And he said to me, no, 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 don't, be up, don't upset yourself and all that there. Um, he said, anyway, when I, like, everything came out, I was drained, like there was nothing more to say. I was just sobbing. Then he pressed his phone and he called, and it must have been his PA, his secretary, whatever. The lady came in and he said to her, take Mrs. Bloy and the children to the waiting room. Uh, he said, my dear, go and sit there. Calm down. So she takes me, I go there. Then she leaves me there with the children in this waiting room and she thinks she goes. Now I don't know what's next now. I'm just sitting there. Now I'm thinking, oh God, I told this man everything, maybe now he's going to tell the social workers and maybe they're going to phone the police for me or whatever. After a long while, she comes back in again. You must know now I'm skinny as a rake. My knees are going like this here. You could actually see how I was shaking like this here. But no, when you're skinny, your knees are even extra big, so you could actually see how they were going. And, um, and I got these big shoes on, and, <laughs> you know, I was like a raggedy doll. Uh, anyway, she comes in after a while, and she says, come with me. I thought, okay, right now. I said, no, I'm scared. She says, no, 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 there's nothing to be scared of, because I thought now they're taking me down to the police side and the social workers are there. Anyway, she said, no, 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 there's nothing to be scared of. Just calm down. We're going to see what we can do. They take me back downstairs to the same floor where I left the children. And everybody's looking at me now. That's why they just tell me to sit on the chairs at the back of everyone. Like, you know, like the last row, whatever. She goes behind the counter. I don't know. She's what, 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 what. And then they call me to the counter. No, 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 no. I'm lying. I'm lying. That was after. When she left, after I spoke to this guy and he told me to go wait in the waiting room, she came in and she wanted my details, my ID number and that kind of thing. So I uh, gave it to her and then she just said to me, Ubi, I'm going to get your file. That's what she said, yeah. So yeah, I'm sitting waiting, 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 waiting. But, and then she came back after a long while and she called me back into this guy's office. So when I came in, I saw my file in front of him. Because every time when you go, they record it, you know, they put the date on or whatever. I saw my file in front of it. Oh God, I thought, now what, I'm in more trouble now. And then he said, sit down. He said, I went through your file and I see that you always come in to query about your home or there, but you're also not working. I said, yes, I told you I'm not working, you know. Um, he said, you see, this is the problem. If we give you a place, how are you going to pay the rent? You know, it's useless going into a, a place that we're going to give you because of your circumstances. And then uh, from the first month or second month, maybe you'll be able to pay because you'll battle because whatever. And then after that, how are you going to manage? I said, I don't know, but I, can't, I got no place to go tonight. He said, 
it's against everything I stand for, but there's your keys for your flat sign here. Same day. Um, you'll never believe what happened that day. I cried and I cried and I cried. I couldn't believe the man was putting my flat keys in front of me. Anyway, the lady takes me downstairs. That's when we went downstairs and I saw me to wait at the bed. So everybody's now that was there that saw me leave the children, this whole drama unfold downstairs, whatever. Now they saw me here again with the children. They're all wondering what happened. Then they called me to the counter and they said, sign here. And they gave me my keys. And I turned around and I looked at everybody. My keys. You know, like that excited. I got my keys, I got my keys. Anyway, I get back to where I run to my mother and I say to her, oh, I got my flat, I got, a, I got a flat, I got a flat. In that room, shame, my mother was very happy for me. And it was a two-bedroom council flat, like two-bedroom lounge, kitchen, toilet and bathroom. No, no hot water and all that, no geysers and things. It was just cement blocks, like, you know, kind of a thing. So, um, when I say something, I meaning like not even plastered or anything, you know, it was just two bedrooms, lounge kitchen, these council houses. Anyway, I go up to where uh, we were living with my in-law. And, well, you must also remember, we also got married because uh, I married my first husband, reason being is that um, my father demanded it. He felt that he didn't want an unmarried daughter kind of a thing with all these children. So we were married. So anyway, he was at work. So I just started packing. And then um, there's a guy that lives in the area that used to move people. And I went to him and I said, Moses, please, I got the flat in Newland. I got no money to pay you, but I will pay you. And a lot of people knew my circumstances. So he said, okay, I am taking a load to Newlands because there were a lot of people that were getting homes there, you know, from this color township to another color township kind of a thing, from winter to Newlands. And uh, he said, no, I am moving some people's afternoon, I'll put your things on. Now in that room, I had a, an old two-door wardrobe, an old-fashioned, like a dressing table, a headboard and a single bed. How I got that, some lady was bought new furniture and she threw it outside and I went to pick it up and that was my furniture. That was all I had. And um, just a few odds and end dishes and things and the clothes. Got it on the truck, went, didn't even know what I was doing. Get into this, oh wait, 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 I'm missing a part. So anyway, when the things were getting packed onto the truck, my husband walked down the road. <laughs> All I said to him was, you better get in the truck, we got a flat in Newlands. And he saw our little bit of things over there. He had no pride to, uh, to even buy things, you know. Anyway. Um, after some discussion, whatever, he gets in the van with us. We go to Newlands. He helped the guy to offload into the flat. So yeah, now when you talk in this room, you can echo in that room because it's empty. 
Um, so we moved him. So he managed to get a two-plate stove. Well, now, like the two plates are 100 rand. That time it could have been like 50 rand, you know, two plates. So we had nothing to sit on and, you know, the whole tooth. So you sit on the floor. I don't know where we got such old maroon carpet from that someone had thrown away. We took that. We put it on the lounge floor. So we used to sit there and that's how it started. But that home, the abuse was worse there because you don't know people in the area. And people won't want, when he's hitting you and you're screaming there, nobody's coming because they don't know you. But anyway, we lived over there and um, as I said, the abuse was just horrific over there. And then as I said, he used to go on a Friday, come back Monday, there's nothing to eat. Then I used to go in the bush and pick those herbs that you can cook. And I used to ask my neighbor for an onion or whatever so children could eat. I used to do a little bit of washing and ironing or babysitting or whatever it was that people around there needed so I could buy bread or whatever for the children. And then, um, yeah, still not working. Can't get a job because where are you going to get a job? So you just have to rely on this person over here. And then uh, one Friday when he was coming back from work, he was murdered here in town. Over the 50 cents, some guy was asking for 50, but he was with his brother, my brother-in-law. And he, my brother-in-law was coming to us for that weekend with him. And they passed this Butterworth Hotel here in Soldier's Way. And I don't know what really happened over there, but this guy just pulled out the knife and stabbed him in the heart, like just thing, and he died right there. Anyway, I became a widow. Single parent widow, uneducated, unskilled, un-everything. I was one of those women that felt very helpless, hopeless, I had no confidence, I had no self-esteem, I had nothing. I had nothing. So Cookie was left with nothing but her freedom. And she had to build a life for herself and her children by going to work. Something she didn't feel particularly skilled to do after so many years being at home, as well as on top of that feeling self-conscious about the way she spoke. It's also during this time that she starts taking an interest in helping other women who are living in abusive environments. Amazingly, she was only 24 years old at this time. I feel like she'd already lived so much up to this point, even though she was still so young. He had taken everything, yeah. So I uh, applied now. Now I found myself alone and um, no income. So I applied for a grant. And it was the grant that we used to look forward to, like how you get the SASA grant now. There's a grant that I used to look forward to every month. Thank God at that time the rent wasn't so much. So, but half of it would go to the rent, so we would keep the roof over our heads. And then little odds and ends, and then the little things I used to do around there by me to just have that kind of food on the table kind of a thing. And then a friend of mine, the same one who gave me those big shoes to wear. She started working in an electronic company. And they were looking for people just to put parts in an assembly board, you know, and solder and that kind of thing. So she spoke for me because it's not like today. Those days you could say, oh, my sister, my friend, you know, and push them in. So anyway, but through her, I got in there. I worked every overtime that was available because it was a little bit extra, no matter how tired you were. So I used to go to work, then 
from that small little company, which is Conlog now, that big company Conlog now, that time it was like just maybe the space of, yeah, a few of us. It just started at that time. And um, I worked at a lot of other electronic companies now because you gain experience and you know all your parts and you know the names of the parts and the color coding and blah, blah, blah. And you know how to solder and everything. So, uh, yeah, I worked in quite a few electronic companies. There were times, there was one company, one of the electronic companies I was working for, it was in Mount Edgecombe, it was United Electronics. I leave in the morning when the children are sleeping and I come back when they were sleeping. So, my neighbor used to see to them. But it was about trying to survive, so, yeah. And then I met, uh, no wait, then while I was there, someone said to me they were looking for someone to sort out mail in the post office and someone spoke for me. And um, I went to speak to the postmaster and I said, please, man, I need a job and all that there because I'm going in the morning, I'm coming back in the evening, I'm not seeing my children, I don't even know what they look like in a uniform. You know, I mean, I'm watching and ironing it, but I don't know what they look like in it because I'm leaving so early, five o'clock in the morning, I'm getting up. Quarter to six or hoppers five was the first bus out or whatever it was. And... Um, yeah, then he said to me, okay, you can come and start on the first. But it wasn't a full day job, but it was a permanent part-time. It was a permanent, but part-time, half day. So it was just like basically being there when they bring the bags of mail. So you're sorting out the letters according to the PO boxes, you know. Yeah. So when people come, your letters are in your box. And I started on that. And I, to me, I felt so good because it was like, for me, it was like, wow, I'm in the post office, you know, for someone that didn't know anything. And um, he taught me a lot, that postmaster, and I used to help him in the front. Uh, and, the post, and the post office was in Newlands East, in our area. And um, he taught me a lot and uh, he used to think, make me come and help him in the front. So I learned how to be a teller, you know, all those kinds. Then you start getting to know the people that come to the post office or whatever it is, the same regular customers. And then you, they, then you get the pensioners coming for, grant, for their pension and the grant days and that. And then um, somehow or the other, I don't know how it happened, but um, when the woman used to come in, we used to stand and talk. And then they started telling me about their stories of their abuse. And I wasn't doing anything. God's truth, I wasn't doing anything. I said, just listen. And the next thing, I started getting knocks on my door at home. And it was a woman who says, Cookie, can I come and speak to you, please? Yeah, sure, come in. Or a knock to say, please, can I, I got nowhere to go. Can I have a place? Yeah, sure, come in. And that's how my work started. Just like that there. And then um, I started teaching myself a little bit about the family law, like reading up about it and that kind of thing. I don't even know if I was reading right things because I couldn't read properly. I couldn't read and write properly. That was the God's truth. And I also couldn't pronounce a lot of words and you know that, but I struggled along. While working in the post office, I actually managed to buy myself a car. My first blue Ford Cortina. 
And that Volkertina used to take the woman to court. Well, now you have the protection order. That time it was the, the interdict. They took well the same thing, but it was not the Domestic Violence Act. It was the Family Prevention Violence Act. And that only applied to women who were married or divorced or separated. Not like how, it's not so broad as it is now. So like if you're in a relationship? No, it wouldn't yeah. apply. Yeah, only for those that were married or separated or divorced. But anyway, this blue v, uh, container used to take the woman to court. And then they used to sit like this. I mean, you get to the court, everybody, you just see the doors open and all these women. But this Ford Cortina had a big hole in, on the, you know, in the floorboard. So I knew how to drive it so that my foot don't go through and put a carpet over it. It had one handle. So the person in the back would say, Cookie, pass me the handle, I want to open the window, and the other one would borrow, you know, it was that kind of thing. And I remember also driving this car one day in the rain, and the wipers were on, and there's my wiper flying over my car. But it took me places, you know. So, um, as I said, as, uh, then after a while, I see how. Everyone's like, hey, the police are outside, the police are outside. Hmm? Oh. The police are knocking on my door. They bring in a woman to me. Oh, Cookie, um, we heard that you do this work, you know, like you're helping women. I'm not helping anybody. I'm not doing anything. But it's okay, Brenda, you know what I'm saying? And then I started building up this relationship with the police. I started building up this relationship with the courts and, you know, in that area. And that's how the work started. So that's how the work started. No funding, no whatever, nothing. Then I started also um, doing voluntary work at child, child welfare and uh, going to the homes and helping there. And, and that's how I ended up with my three girls that I adopted. But I've had, I became a crisis care mother. I had more than 30 children in my care. Like ch babies that were found in bins, in wherever, abandoned, excuse me, wherever. They would bring them to me, I would keep them for six weeks. You're still in Newlands? Oh, still in Newlands, yeah. Still in the flat. But as I said, I built up relationships. And um, if they found a child or baby, whatever it is, then they would, as a crisis care mother, they would bring the baby to you and you keep the baby for six weeks while the social workers do the paperwork. But they would pay you for that six weeks. So that was like a little bit of income for me. But then they also have like educational workshops, like the mornings, two, three hours, and I used to attend them and I started learning. Then I met up with other people who were doing gender-based violence work through those workshops and I started going to their meetings and that's how it all started. So from such humble beginnings, Cookie has built an amazing organization that helps women. In those early days though, she was still learning, still building up her skills as well as finding an actual space where she could help people. So you attended all these meetings, you meet different people, you start building up relationships, you start learning about all this. But while you're doing all this, the women are still coming. There was an old clinic, um, a health clinic, baby clinic, in this area. But they had like a double garage at the back. And they also sent clients to me, their clients, you know. I don't know who they thought I was at that time, but I didn't know anything about counseling. I was just listening. But anyway, I did do the counseling courses and all afterwards. But uh, they had a double garage at the back. That was like a storeroom, 
It was just abandoned and I went to go and ask them for this building. And they said, well, you can have it if you can clean it up. Cookie even found love again when she met a patient and kind man named David. What started as a firm friendship has turned into a beautiful and long-lasting partnership. He supported her when she started the work and he continues to support her to this day. Then he used to always say to me, I, like we should just talk, and he used to say to me, I, I'm tired of this life, you know. I, I want a family I can come home to and I, can't, I don't like this life. And I used to say to him, oh, I'm going to find you somebody very nice, you know, one of my nice friends, because he's like, he's a very passive, very neutral, very humble, if I could put it in that way, person. You don't drink, you don't smoke, you only go to church. So uh, I told him I'm finding him a nice friend. Then that used to be part of our conversations. And then that 1988, that day when I was laying on the floor and he came and we were talking, then he said to me, oh, I did meet somebody. Uh, but she doesn't know yet, you know, that I care for her. I said, oh, please bring her, you know, I want to meet her and all that there. Don't worry, I'll convince her, you know, and I'll tell her what a nice person you are. Who is she? Who is she? And he said, no, I can't tell you right now. I'll tell you about it. I begged him and begged him. And then he had to tell me, he said, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the one day, one weekend, in, it, was a, it was the following, following month, February. This was in January. Yeah? February, we were, we were, he came and visited, but we were just talking, as I said. Must not, we still never kiss or anything yet. Never hold hands, no nothing. And I said to him, I said, yeah. You know what? You keep on saying that you want a home to come to and all that. This is a fully furnished home because I furnished out my home now with everything. I short of nothing. People just admire my home now, you know, because whatever I earned, I pumped into the home and my children and things. I said to him, you're always saying that you want to get married and all the day you want to come home to a family. I said, and then you said you want to get married to me. Tell me something. You're coming into a fully furnished home. What are you bringing to the table? He said, what do you want? Can I have your salary every month? That's where you start with a man. Can I have your salary every month? He said, that's not a problem. I said, you're serious? He said, yeah. And you know why I said that? Because I never ever had financial stability. And I thought, you want me? I want your money. So I looked at him and I laughed and he said, I'm serious, you can have it. You can keep the card, you can do whatever you want to do. I said, yeah, because I'm giving you a fully furnished home. And a family that you want to come home to and everything. Still no, nothing between us, we're only still talking. That was February, 15th of March, we got married. 15th of March, 1989, and we're 30 years together. But my children, let's go to the children. They were still small, and um, he grew them up, he supported them. They went through school and all, I mean, they're all married now, they're all in their own homes and things. So that's where we adopted the three girls in this, because we couldn't get children, because my children were tired. And I tried to undo them, but unfortunately I had a topic pregnancy. So they had to remove the tube, so we just adopted the three girls. And that was from the three that came to me from, through the social workers as a crisis care mother. Because he was also with me when I used to bring the children. And he used to help to look after them and all that. So, yeah. So now this, now while I was with him, that was when I got the clinic. Yeah. So he helped me now to clean up there and everything. 
So, we used to battle for chairs and a desk and a little things here and a little thing just to make it look like a little bit of an office. So now, and we called it the Newlands East Support Group. That's how we, that, that was the first name. And then um, I said, you know what, we need a telephone. Let me go to Telcom. I went to Telcom offices, I said to them, I started an organization not knowing the protocols. <laughs> Hey, Lord, I come a long way. I started an organization that's called the Newlands East Support Group. I'm asking Telcom if they can donate a phone. They looked at me like I was crazy. They don't donate phones, <laughs> you know. But the moment, it was the, right, it was the right moment. When they tell me and then I turned around and said, oh, God, where am I going to get a phone from now? But as I turned, there were two guys standing on the side, two black guys standing on the side of me. I just thought it was customers, but as I turned, the one guy said to me, uh, lady, come here. Uh, I work for Telcom, and uh, I heard you asking for a phone, you run an organization. So I started, he said, tell me about it. So I started telling him. He said, I run the CSI program. Mm. Let's go to my office and we'll talk. I don't even know what the hell was CSI that time. It wasn't CSI, it was something else. Social something, whatever. And I uh, go up to his office and he starts questioning me and questioning me and I'm talking and all that there. So on his desk he had like a, a container with a lot of pens and pencils and papers. I said to him, and I was so, <laughs> I was so raw at that time. I said, oh, you've got so much pens and pencils, you don't have anything in the office, give me some. <laughs> you know, it was like that kind of a thing, like, yeah. Just so brazen kind of a thing. Don't ask me where it came from because I was never like that, you know, but I was like, I, I found myself getting there where I started being more outspoken. But you must remember I wasn't speaking properly because of that slur. David helped me to speak properly because it's like I couldn't pronounce my S's and my T's and my tongue used to just roll. Now, sometimes when I'm overtired, my words will slur. If I'm really tired, and, and it's like I don't want to talk anymore. So if I'm talking, it's like, mm, you know, like a slur. But it's like, say if I'm saying, um, what can I say? A box of matches, right? And maybe I can't get matches out, the word out. Then David will say, match. You know, like I'll look at his lips. And you'll say, say it like the how I'm saying it to you. Matches, you know, like that there. Then I'm, and that's how I started getting my words back. So then this company I used to work for also sent me for speech and speech therapy and that kind of thing. Because I was such a good worker and they made me a supervisor. And then one morning I walked in and I said, I'm giving 24 hours notice, I don't want to work here anymore. The boss called me, to, the manager called me, to the, the supervisor called me to the office, the head supervisor. What's wrong, Cookie? I said, I don't know. I just don't want to work anymore. 24 hours notice. He calls the manager, Mickey. And he says, um, go to Mickey's office. I go to Mr. Mason, Mickey Mason. I go to Mr. Mason's office. He says, Cookie, what's wrong? You're one of our best workers. Because when it came to overtime, my name was on top of the list. Because we used to push, you know. And I used to push more than the score that was required. 
I was like really a worker. I'm still, I'm still, I still have that thing in me, yeah. In fact, our whole family, I think we got that from our father. But um, he says to me, why do you want to leave? I said, I don't know. He says, no, 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 I'm sending you for counselling. When you finish with the counselling, then you can decide if you still want to think, but we can't lose you. And that man changed my life. I was going to ask if you ever went for counselling. That man all of changed that. my life. My God, that man. He sent me to... Um, Not a psychiatrist. Psychologist. Psychologist. He sent me to the psychologist that he apparently knew. And that changed my life in a direction I never even imagined. Those counseling and the company transport used to take me and bring me back. Oh. During the working hours, you know, for every session I went through. I went through that counseling process. Phew. I laid on the floor, I cried, I dug everything, but it all came out from my childhood. It wasn't even about a now problem, it was, it just went back. In the end, I was counseling the psychologist. Oh God, we became friends after that day. Anyway, I stayed with the company for a while after that day and then I left. Then I went back into electronic work again. Then I was working for this other company. And, um, because I was chasing money for the home, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't much those days, but it was like, mm. even if you were paying 20 rand more, I'm there, you know, kind of a thing. So uh, I went to the electron. I worked there for quite a few years. And then um, from there, I went full time into the work of gender-based violence. And um, yeah, so that's how we started the clinic. Started working at the clinic. Oh, the telecom thing. Um, this guy said, Oh, you want to come out and you want to see the place? I said, Sure, come. Thing. Then they came, they looked at the place, they saw what we were doing. Then they paid. They said, Okay, do you have other people here to help? I said, Yeah, there's a lot of ladies here in the community that want to help, but we all need training. We're just doing what we need to do. I said, No, no problem. They gave us 40,000, not gave us, but I'm saying there was 40,000. 20,000 went to uh, this guy called Dr. Ravi Naidu from UKZN. I, I know that name. Yeah, he came and he trained us, 20 of us. He trained us on lay counseling and everything. And the other 20 went towards some of the things that we needed in the, the, the offices. Well, I call it the office. Because we had the waiting room and we had the, the counseling room thing. And uh, so Telcom also helped me at that time. Let me look for donations here. Yeah, people used to sponsor, yeah, they a little bit odds and that kind of thing. Don't, I can't remember, but we did end up with the phone and I can't remember how, where, whatever. But yeah, the work started from there. Then um, there was a network that just started in Durban on violence against women different organizations coming together, different women activists kind of a thing. Now when you're in this, you hear all this, so I started joining up with them. And that's how that KZN network on violence against women started. Because when they came together, um, they were looking for a provincial coordinator. 
just an admin person and the coordinator to coordinate the activities and network meetings and all. And I took that position because they saw what I was doing. When it came to qualifications, yeah, sorry, don't have. But it's okay, I can do your work. And I really worked. I worked. I really worked. And then there was funding at that time, and then the funding got finished. It was a national network. Each province had a provincial coordinator and an admin. So we were a strong women's movement. But then the funding got finished, and a lot of uh, the, the networks fell defunct and fell by the wayside. There is one or two still available. But what I did is I registered the network as my own organization. I took over. Cookie has made quite an impact on the world and she's received recognition for it. She was named as one of the ShopRite Women of the Year in 2004 and she received the Womandla Award in 2019. She's even been featured by Oprah on her Falling Off the Wagon webcast. And these awards are great, but over and above that, I realize that she's made an actual impact on women's lives over the years, as she goes um, a bit into what started her organization and everything that they'd achieved. As she spoke, I realized that she started looking at this issue now from a higher level, trying to change policies, shifting focus to actually try and create a safer society for women and children instead of her earlier approach of listening and counseling. Herself and her colleagues have done big things like mobilizing thousands of women in 2019 during the total shutdown movement, while they obviously participated in the big march here in Durban in September 2019 as well. So they've done a lot. But at the moment, the network needs funding because they, they want to continue making an impact. The biggest project that we ran was the funding when we got it from USA Pepper. We were in a partnership with an American company called PCI. And uh, it was a three-way partnership, but they were the fiscal uh, managers of the funds and uh, from PEPFA, USA PEPFA. And uh, it was the uh, Western Cape Network and the KZN Network. If, you, if you're on Facebook, you go to a page called Prevention in Action. It's, and, and you'll identify the page because it's got like different hands in different colors like this here. Yeah. And you'll see all our work there. So, so we created 52 violence-free zones, like safe spaces for women in um, KZN. We did a lot of work, six years of hard work of that day. But anyway, prior to that, um, I've done a lot of, I'm, I'm just talking about that big project. But there was other projects that we did. Then um, I did a lot of partnerships with Department of Justice, um, NPA, social development, SAPS. I always led the campaigns in KZN, like especially in Interquene. If anyone wanted anything done around gender-based violence, it wasn't like it was Cookie Edwards anymore, it was like Cookie Violence Against Women, you know, surname, yeah. So it was the relationships I built over the years that made me be known by everybody. Uh, the work that I've done. So from there, we do trainings, we do campaigns, we do advocacy, lobbying, you name it, anything around gender-based violence. So do you basically help ladies if they want to leave their husbands? Do you? We work with the shelters and that kind of thing. But the only thing is now we've moved. Let me get that part out. We've moved from counselling like mm -hmm. this here. I've moved from that to bringing organisations together. 
sharing resources, networking, sharing best practices, that kind of mm. thing. Anyway, I haven't done it for a while now because there's no funding to do so because I'm now with Aid. Because right now the network's got no funding to continue to do anything. And did this last March, didn't it bring you guys back into the conversation? No, you know, it did. It, it did. was quite a big thing, this. Yeah, no, it did. The total shutdown, it did. Yes. But what happened from the total shutdown? Oh, wait, I'll come back to the total shutdown. I just want to take you back. Um, I conducted a woman's safety audit as a pilot project here in Kwamakuta with uh, the municipality. It was the first of its kind in South Africa. And um, with the department, um, with the municipality, but one of the departments that's called Safer Cities. Mm -hmm. And in partnership with UN Habitat based in Kenya. So we implemented the Women's Safety Audit in Kwamakuta as the first pilot project on the safety audit. And they had their first international safety audit conference in Montreal in Canada. And that's where my travel started. So I've traveled over 20 countries presenting papers, not only on the safety audit, but on violence against women and all that there. So I've traveled practically half the world already. Africa all over, most of the countries in Africa. Egypt about over 10 times, because I used to do like, okay, let me, let's go back for that. Always makes me laugh. Sometimes I get invited to take some of the lectures at the university for the first year or last year students or whatever it is. So I've done quite a few years. In KZN, I've done quite a lot in Egypt at the American University in Cairo. I've been to Amsterdam, Philippines, Mexico, Jamaica, Vancouver, Canada, India, Colombia, Bogota. Gosh, I can't even name but Anyway, but all the countries that I was invited to, um, I had to present my own papers around violence against women in South Africa and blah, blah, blah. So that's experience gained over the years, self-taught, you know. And I used to always feel like oh, intimidated in the beginning, you know, like, oh, I should shiver, like, I'm going to speak to all these people. And not last year before she, you know, uh, you know, uh, when they have, um, the UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women and its Causes. The last two years ago, Rashida Manju, but she was from KZN, so we all started this work together. She's always said to me, okay, let me tell you something. Well, she, was, she, she studied law, she became a magistrate, she started the, legal, the law clinic at the UKZN. She went, she was at UCT. Then she became the Special Rapporteur and you know, whatever. And she's always said to me in the beginning, let me tell you something. You see, everything you know, they're studying for it. They don't feel intimidated because what they want, what they're learning, you already know. And they come coming to you to ask you. So don't, and it helped build my confidence up a bit. Yeah, then we had the total shutdown. There were 10 of us, Emma, Tamsin, June, Beverly, a few others. And we brought out those 7,000 women mobilizing. 
for the total shutdown. Then you know that they had the 24 demands and all that there from the total shutdown. So in March last year, I was invited uh, when they had the opening of the Boyson, the new magistrate's court in Boysons. And um, they wanted people that belong to organizations to come up. So because I know everybody, I was inviting like your community organization, just given an experience. Anyway, when we get there, I was one of the co-signatories with uh, our president, Tarul Ramaphosa, for, to sign the declaration. So I co-signed the declaration with him in March last year on the, the declaration on ending gender-based violence and femicide. And um, from the declaration, you got the National Strategic Plan now. From the National Strategic Plan, you got the Emergency Rapid Response Plan that the President presented, I mean, if you saw in the news at the Joint Parliamentary setting in October, beginning of October after Unani's uh, thing and all these young girls, 63 women getting murdered in one month in August. Women's month? Yeah, 63. And uh, he presented the, the National Strategic Plan but also as um, the overall, the overarching document, but there's the emergency rapid response plan that comes out of it. I sit on the presidential committee now. It's called the Interim Gender-Based Violence and uh, Femicide Committee at Presidency. So there's nine provinces represented. I'm the only one from this province and other people from the other provinces. So we co-chair, 51% is civil society, 49% is government. And we put that national strategic plan together. We've worked on it. We've worked on the emergency rapid response plan, which is a national document now to be implemented by everybody. But the good part of it is there's 1.6 billion rand for this. But most of it is going to government departments for or, um, implementing programs, gap, closing gaps where there's lack of resources and all those kind of things. But, uh, and 130 million at the moment now for civil society. Well, the criteria hasn't gone out for civil society for the proposals. But what's nice about this plan is that every week on a Thursday, at four o'clock, all government departments relevant, all government departments must send a report on what they've done. That report gets compiled by the co-chairs and things and the secretariat in this uh, interim committee and sent to the president so that he can see where the lack is and who's not providing the proper service delivery on implementation. So that's Every what's good. Thursday. Every Thursday at four o'clock. So as I said now, every Thursday, four o'clock, or everybody, civil society and government departments must show what they are doing. It's like a state of emergency now, the way women are killed. So that what we were saying is that it's not femicide anymore, it's like genocide. The way women and children are getting murdered. I mean, every time, look what happened in August, my God. And it also shows that even if you're going to a post office now, you're not safe. 
Let, let me just say this over here. Right now, I, my wish is to get funding again to bring organizations together again as a network. We don't need big funding. I don't... Let me be honest with you. Over the years, I've had staff. I've had offices. I've had it all. Company cars, organization cars. I don't want it again. It's so much of a headache. But what I would want, that's what I'm saying. I don't want uh, big funding. What I would like is, in KZN, is to strengthen the women's movements again. So what we should do is we should divide, break up uh, KZN into different districts, you know. So we would have uh, the Newcastle network. We would have the Zululand network. We would have the one at the South Coast. We would have the Itaquani one. But um, then I used to travel to all these of here. It's, uh, how can I say? Travel to them so they have, so like, just say if I'm going to Newcastle, I will contact the person over there and say, call a meeting for networking. Then we ask each one to share what they are doing, like five minutes on your projects and what have you. And um, so they're sharing best practices amongst themselves. It's not so fragmented anymore. Because it's fragmented. And, um, excuse me, just to bring them together. And then maybe once a year have them all come together for a two or three day kind. That's all I'm looking for. Mm. I don't want funding for no office, no staff, no nothing. I'm quite fine. I can work from my home. I've had it all. But um, the gender sector is so fragmented, everyone is working in isolation. Nobody knows what their neighbor's doing or what services they're providing and that kind of thing. So to do that is my dream. Because when we used to have that, you actually uh, um, prevent secondary victimization of survivors of domestic violence. Because when you do that, and you bring people together, the organizations, the service providers. Whether it's because uh, when we used to have the network meetings, it wasn't only the civil society, it was also government departments in that area. So if a client, uh, uh, well, I call them a client. If a client came in and wanted um, assistance or whatever it is, you wouldn't be saying, oh, I, I think maybe you should go to the court and, and, and apply for a protection order because that's the only thing you know. But yet if you'll come together, you will know what other services, uh, what other options are available. It's not only the legal remedies that are available, but there's also other options that are available. So through those network meetings, you'll be able to understand what your neighbors are doing, you know, and you close the gaps in that way on uh, secondary victimization to survivors of domestic violence. If you look at your shelters, the shelters keep you for six months, maybe sometimes they'll even push to a year or something. And then what happens after that? So these yeah. are things now that you need to bring together again, yeah. So I'm just looking for funding to bring the, the only funding that I need just for travel and accommodation and catering for those little meetings. When I'm talking catering, I'm not talking all your fancy stuff and that kind of thing. Just tea and scones or tea and biscuits or whatever for the people that are in the meeting and just for travel. And if you're traveling far out, you just need to sleep over for that night. See the project that we ran, that one that really took the air out of me, 
um, was that prevention in action. It was like everybody is providing treatment, care and support after the incident. What about the prevention part? So you think that prevention is, oh, if I go to a school or in you know, a community hall or I call a meeting and I talk about how wrong violence against women, that's not prevention. That's just creating awareness. So the one that we did, we actually created a prevention model about disrupting an incident of violence before it even happens, or even why it's happening to disrupt it. So we came up with this model, but there was no funding to continue with it or to roll it out. Cookie leaves me with a powerful thought, that we can all try to do something when we see that someone is in trouble, and that it doesn't have to necessarily be something dramatic or scary. But um, now we on, today was the first day on the 16 days of activism on no violence against women. And yes, it creates awareness, you're raising awareness. But we need to do something every day, whether it's strong messages out there, like how we did the HIV campaigns, it was everywhere. We need to go back to that again, those strong messages around gender-based violence. And um, because it's a thing that's become so normal in our society now, it's like, even if you hear your neighbor screaming, what do you do? You say, oh my God, I don't know. Yeah, how is it? But what do you do? Nothing. So what, do you, what action do you take to even stop it? All you need to do is phone the police. No one's going to know you call the cops. It's that kind of thing. If you're driving and you see something, you're like, oh my God, look how he's there, but you carry on driving. Cost you nothing, put your hand on the hooter, draw attention. Because you know why? The car next to you, behind you, in front of you, also want to do something. So you find that a lot of people want to do something, but don't know what to do. So if it takes one person to put their hand on the hooter, everybody else will hooter. What have you done? You've disrupted it. You've drawn attention to this thing, you know, and you won't continue eating now. We've also taught in our prevention action thing, if your neighbor's abusing, getting abused or whatever, and you can hear it's going on next door, knock. And, oh, I'm so sorry to, but your, your approach, I'm so sorry to worry you. Please, I hope I'm not disturbing you. Please lend me a cup of sugar. I'll replace it in the morning. Or, um, especially like if you're living in the flat and that kind of thing, it's like, um, I'm so sorry to worry. I'm doing washing, but I just want to find out are you using your lines tomorrow? Can I use your washing lines to hang up my washing? Silly things like that there. You know what I'm saying? Now people, are, that's what I'm saying, people know it's wrong, but they don't know what to do about it. So with this prevention model, we were trying to show people, you know, little things to take action. You don't have to go and stand between two people and say, no, 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 it's wrong, you can't do it. You don't do those things. But it's the, another way of approaching it and disrupting the incident. I don't know about you, but this powerful woman really made me feel hopeful. In her own life, she certainly rose above extremely difficult circumstances, turning things around by her own hard work. As she said, she didn't go and study to obtain lots of qualifications that led her down this path. Life kind of led her down its own path, on, all on its own. But she made it through, growing into someone who does her best to help others who are facing extremely difficult circumstances too. If you'd like to contact Cookie, um, it would be best to get hold of her on her cell phone busy as it is because trust me I've seen how many messages and phone calls she gets 
you can trust that she will check her phone regularly and she will get back to people. Um, so if you do want to make contact with her, you can send a message or you can phone 082-321-0600. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can find us on Facebook at Foundation Podcast or visit our blog for more details about this episode, including the organization's contact details. Thank you. Foundation was created by me, Simone Scott, with original music created by Wayne Charles Simpson. Mm-hmm.